0: I need to take a moment and, and gather myself. One of the things that I think is um, one of the, the most meaningful things that we do as a congregation is, is dedicate children uh, to the Lord and to the, to the well being, or to, the, uh, the, um, to being served by the church. And then the next thing after that is baptism, and we get to do both in the same day, which is pretty awesome. Um, also, I'm, I'm feeling uh, from, from my, my toes starting all the way up through my feet, and all the, like, I'm, I'm feeling the joy of the season start to, uh, to, to take root in me, and so I'm just getting more and more excited as we get uh, closer to Christmas Eve. So if you're not excited right now, I hope that that changes before the end of the day, or I'm just not going to talk to you very much, I guess. <laughs> That's not true. I'll talk to anybody. Um, Why don't we pray? Father, with all the things that are happening around us and also with the busyness of the the, the coming season, how after Thanksgiving, the pace of the secular world seems to increase. I pray that, that we would now be stilled by your presence. And so, Father, would you allow your peace, the peace that transcends all understanding, to rest on us? And Father, with that settling, would you, from that posture in that place, would you teach us today? In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the last of our, uh, our Abide series. And uh, if you've been with us for a bit, um, we got a little bit of a, of a, a refresher, a little bit of a review to start off with before we get to our parable for the day. But we know that in John 15, verse 4, Jesus speaks this to us. He says, Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Now this has been the foundation of our study this fall. As we've looked at the parables that Jesus taught during his ministry as we seek to understand what it means to abide and how we actually do this abide thing we've also begun to recognize the fact that we are creating our own language here at uh, at the vineyard we are calling that language bvc ish um and and so then with the word the nlt translates as remain or some other translates use as abide it's a word that, that we have robbed from the the greek lexicon It is no longer Greek. We firmly planted it into our native tongue of BVC-ish. The language that we're creating together and that we will continue to create as as time moves forward. Uh, This is our language of interpreting Scripture. And the word abide in BVC-ish is meno, meaning to abide, remain, endure, to stay with, or continue. This word is also used to describe a place that we would stay or a place that we would dwell, a place where we would remain. John uses that, this word in the Greek, he uses this word meno uh, because he's creating a metaphor of, of dwelling and hospitality to describe the relationship between Jesus and those that believe in him, this word meno. But also, he uses the word to describe Jesus the Son's relationship with God the Father a mutual abiding, a mutual remaining in each other. Now what we found during this fall series is that this passage means to minnow in Jesus is to draw life from him. When we draw life from Jesus, when we minnow Jesus, when we abide in Jesus, we can draw life from nothing else. To draw life is more than just to be nourished by or sustained by. To draw life to meno, to to abide, is a transformative reality that pushes out all of the things that are not of Jesus and leaves only that which is Jesus in our lives. And this change, it affects everything. It affects the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we act, the way that we live. So we're going to end our series today with a parable that doesn't just apply to individuals, it applies to the church as a whole, to the collective followers of Jesus. How we menow Jesus together and thus reflect Jesus to the world, how we minnow Jesus together and how we operate As the body of the risen Lord, the self expression of God to those that don't know him, this is what we'll find in our parable today appropriately. This is the parable of the vineyard workers. Come on, nobody thought that was clever. Man, it's a rough room. We're even getting cinnamon rolls today. All right. Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the vineyard workers. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in the town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working all day? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, They assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner, those people worked only one hour and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all the day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should he be jealous? Because I'm kind to others. So those who are last now will be first. Then those who are first will be last. This parable is... A favorite of mine, because this parable lands. C.G. Montefiore is a forefather to Messianic Judaism. He calls this the greatest and most glorious of all the parables. What he said about this parable was that reading this for the first time, it might seem to have limited application, but it contains truth and strikes at the very heart of what it means to abide in Christ. Not that we would try to create maybe a hierarchy of parables, but this one strikes at the very heart of what it means to abide in Christ. Now, at that first, most basic level, this parable can serve as a warning to the disciples then that were hearing it, but also to the church now. At first reading, at first glance, this can be seen as a warning. Hierarchy and favoritism are marks of the world, not marks of the kingdom of God. Hierarchy and favoritisms are marks of minnowing, drawing life from selfish competition rather than drawing life from Jesus. We don't receive more than a full measure of grace. We don't have like a super-duper extra salvation if we win the contest of following Jesus longer than anyone else. The contest is not for who can do this the longest. And if you have siblings, then you're probably well-versed in competitions to see who can do things the longest. But the contest here Is not for who can do this the longest. The contest is for the soul, and it's God's contest. The party is not there for those that have been there the longest, who have served the longest. It's for those who make it at all. This really strikes at the heart of having an us for and no more kind of mentality. To embrace that conduct is to embrace the conduct of the world and reject the example of Christ. The exclusionary community is not a church, it's a social club. It's a social club that rejects new wine in order to maintain the integrity of the old container. Now, that exclusionary community that is not the church is alive and well today in religious organizations. And the religious of the day that that Jesus was teaching in had had also created the same kind of dichotomy and creating all kinds of barriers that they required people to clear in order to be considered uh, one of them. All types of barriers that must be cleared in order to be accepted rather than excluded in the community. Those that had been able to to clear these human-made barriers earlier in life had a special honor in the community. Now, in the church, the one not made up by human barriers, this dichotomy is rejected as all join Jesus and take their place in the body of Christ. So this warning to the disciples then and to the church now, is about, re- is about rejecting the pride that comes from personal achievement and accepting the humility that comes from realizing that we have all gained what we don't deserve. We reject the pride that suggests we did anything at all to earn the things that we have when we come to the cross. And we accept the humility that recognizes that we don't deserve any of it. This is about not making the community about self, but making self about the community. Instead of your church or my church, it becomes, this is the church that I serve. Instead of a building where I go to consume, it's the place where I fit into a body that serves as the expression of the living God. Wrapped within this message to avoid hierarchy and favoritism, is a warning to the Jews that are listening to be ready for what the church would soon look like. As the nation of Israel, they were the chosen people of God. They are the chosen people of God. They were chosen by God for the purposes of His plan to bring reconciliation into the world. Soon, Very soon, along the timeline of of this plan, they would have an opportunity to be united united with the Gentiles, their non-Jewish neighbors, as co-heirs to the saving grace of the loving Creator God. This parable is is preparation for the new reality of the church to come. In in Romans 11, we see Paul tell us of God's special olive tree. The tree of Abraham, using this tree as a metaphor... This tree is a metaphor for the plan of God for the world and the intentional family that this plan creates. The members of the nation of Israel that recognized and believed in Jesus are the roots of this tree. There are some branches broken off due to unbelief in Jesus. But when faith and belief comes back, those branches can be grafted back into the tree as belief in Jesus would return. Now, as Gentiles, we join the non Jewish members of the church as the wild branch grafted into the tree of Abraham. And thus together we create the family of God. And so, what this parable really is, this is basically the warning that, that Clark Griswold never got that Cousin Eddie was coming for Christmas. This is the, the, the Jews getting the warning that, hey, the wild branch is coming, so prepare. I think Clark would have prepared differently had he known. No hierarchy, no favoritism. In the family of God. That brings us to the next point that we can pull from this parable how this teaching presents the love and comfort of God. William Barclay uses the image found in Revelation of the holy city with 12 gates when he unpacks this parable. He says this. With the gate facing the east, some will enter the kingdom of God early at the dawn of their life, while still others will enter in the twilight from the west gate as the sun sets behind them. No matter when a person enters the kingdom of God, late or soon, in the first flush of youth, in the strength of midday, or when the shadows are lengthening, they are equally dear to the Father. Think of the comfort that comes from that reality. We have the comfort that flows from the love of God visible from this parable. Each were paid the same wage, were shown the same love, whether they came at five or they came at dawn. Comfort flows from the love of God, and the love is evident in this parable. Now, though, we can take a look at the compassion of God that flows from this parable and how that compassion gives us an image of what it is to abide in Jesus, to draw life from Jesus, and to allow the life that we live abiding in Jesus to draw power From him and to bear fruit. In other words, this I think really is truly the main point of the parable of the vineyard workers. Consider the workers waiting in the village for work. Now, the harvest creates a need for an influx of temporary workers. This would lead a village common area to to be packed with able-bodied harvesters, outfitted with their own tools, ready to be hired on to a crew that would then go into the vineyards and bring in the grapes. This was a regular part of the the agricultural life of Jesus' time and of this geographic location. This is a normal part of the annual life. The grape harvest would come at the turn into autumn late summer into autumn, it would come before the rain began. It was important for the grapes to be brought in before the rain starts, and so this caused a race between man and nature that that created the economic imperative of having a larger labor force ready for temporary duty. You wouldn't necessarily need this large of a labor force during the rest of the year, but as you're racing the, the coming rain, you need as many as you could hire, and indeed, as many could be hired, would be hired. The point here, when we look at the workers, can be misunderstood. The workers found in the village as the day went on were obviously not hired earlier by the other vineyard owners in the area. Now, some might think that, that these are, are the workers that slept in. These were the teenage workers. that It was like the weekend or, or, or you know spring break-ish. These are, are those that uh, maybe um, hit snooze because we know that snooze is a trap. This is one of those, it's like a lazy potato chip. You can't hit it just once. Amen? Right? Uh, yep, I'm with you. We might think that these are the lazy ones that needed to sleep off the night before. Maybe these are the ones that were more interested in, a, in getting a good lunch or an afternoon siesta. In other words, maybe this parable is about me but it isn't (laughs) concluding that their lack of employment is tied to work ethic is a mistake that avoids what I think is the main point of this parable and also that idea that these were the lazy workers it's actually not supported by the scripture that we just read or by the historical narrative that Jesus is speaking into That idea that these are the lazy ones isn't something that we can actually defend with Scripture. At a time when vineyard owners are racing the clock against the rain, when the need for workers is imperative, when the normal practice was to hire as many as you could to get the grapes in as quickly as you could, there are workers there that wait all day And are not hired. Instead of seeing them as the lazy ones, how about the ones that stayed from dawn until 9 a.m., and then again into noon, and then as the day went on into 3 o'clock, and even at 5 o'clock, they were still waiting to be hired. It doesn't strike me as somebody more interested in the afternoon siesta than in feeding their family. So instead of seeing this from from an angle of lazy workers not ready to go when the sun comes up, what we see are these able-bodied workers that are passed over due to something else. That something else is very simple that leads to something complex and then right back to being rather simple. The simple point is this. They weren't hired because nobody wanted them. They weren't hired because nobody wanted to hire them. No one wanted them. No one wanted these workers. Think about the trade-off. I would rather risk losing part of my crop than hire you. It isn't that they're unnoticed. It's that they were passed over. In verse 6, when the landowner asks them why they'd been doing nothing all day, why aren't you gainfully employed, they have a very simple answer. Their simple answer is no one hired us. using this parable to learn how to abide in Jesus, how to minnow Jesus as individuals and a community, we can take note of what the landowner did with these people no one wanted to hire, the ones that no one wanted to work with, the undesirable. Now, as I said before, this presents what looks like a complex problem, but it's really simple. This is prejudice. The prejudice of the other landowners kept these workers from being able to use their skills, their talents, and their energy. Prejudice is keeping these workers from the source of life, from economic survival. And that means that their families are going to be impacted as well. They have no work because no one wants them. Now, we can speculate as to what it was that made them undesirable, and we can use some historical inqu- inquiry to kind of back up that speculation. So what was it about them that made them undesirable? That, that word prejudice is such a charged word now in, 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 our, uh, in our culture that we really need to, to take a look at what is going on here, what is making these people undesirable. At this point in history, the nation of Israel had three common enemies. Themselves, which were really the other Jews, Samaritans and Gentiles now other Jews would be undesirable if they were not in the eyes of the beholder clean if the behavior was deemed unacceptable if they were poor if they were different from what one would view as good they would be shunned a standard or expectation would be created and anyone outside of this standard would be seen as less good than me The subjective nature of this kind of expectation and standard building allows for excuses for the ones that make the expectations. But that's a whole other sermon, right? Or maybe not. Think about how this very practice might leak into the church today. When a standard of behavior or an expectation is built that anyone outside could not come in, when we exclude, based on a standard we create, we find ourselves in the same position as the the vineyard owners that wouldn't hire these folks that are ready to work. So other Jews, also Samaritans, Samaritans are are seen as as apostates, they're they're seen as pagans, unbelievers, people that that had not, they, they had been at one time, they had been heirs to the kingdom, but they had allowed themselves to be polluted by the world, and because they're polluted by the world, because they had indulged in the culture around them, they are no longer heirs and are in fact enemies to those not polluted by culture. But then when we ask the question, well, what does it mean to be polluted by culture? We get back to that first standard where we're building an expectation and applying it to other people. They'd indulged in the culture around them and are now not worthy to be hired. And then also we have Gentiles. Gentiles had no place in the community of believers because they were pagans And to be associated with a pagan would violate one of the standards that we'd set up before. And so when we look at those that are undesirable, we have a large population of folks that could fit the mold of the undesirable, of the unhirable. Those people were unworthy. They were unchosen. No self-respecting religious person would dare engage with any of these scum. They are not welcome in the vineyard. They're not welcome in the community. And certainly, those that had polluted themselves with the culture of the world had canceled their inheritance in the family of God. So they can't be hired. But then the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner, in this case, representing God. Representing that which we are called to menow, to abide, to draw life from. God goes back to the village all day. He goes back to the village. Several times in the day, he goes back to the village. He goes back looking for people that no one wants. This wasn't just a chance encounter. He didn't happen to go back to, to go to Ace because they didn't have the right drill bit. He wasn't just running an errand as he went back. He went back several times throughout the day and found more. And when he found them, he wasn't just about their inclusion. He wasn't just about including the people he fa- he, he's including the people he's looking for, not just the people that he found. He goes to the village looking for them. A stark contrast to exclusion. These people the sort that no one wants to hire are those that Jesus seeks out all day long. And when he finds them, he invites them into the kingdom and he offers them the same wage as those that were there all along. Total entry into the kingdom. We can view this parable through the lens of John fifteen because this this parable calls us to a place of evaluation and then likely to some action. John fifteen five through nine says this Yes, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will, will produce much fruit. even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. Drawing life from the vine leads us to be the vine. Which means we find those that no one wants and we offer them the kingdom. We do the stuff that Jesus did. So who are those Who are those that we are unwilling to engage with? Who, as vineyard owners, would we not hire as we move through the village common areas? Are there people that are so polluted by the culture of this world that we've decided that they are not able to be hired into our vineyard? Are, are there those that have too liberal of an interpretation of the, of the Bible or too conservative of an application of Scripture? Are there those that have cultural views on identity and sexuality that don't line up with ours? Are there political views that are incompatible, economic disparities, addictions, homelessness, disability? Are there any people that if we were to see in the village, we would avoid hiring are there any people we would walk past? This honest evaluation is essential at both the individual and the corporate level. We have to ask ourselves these questions as individuals, and then we, as the vineyard, have to deal with this together and ask ourselves these same questions. The actions of the landowner, the example that Jesus is setting in this parable is to love the unlovable, to invite those that make us uncomfortable. This, I think, is the message of the parable of the vineyard workers. To minnow Jesus, to abide, to remain in his love, is to be like him and do the stuff that he did as his self-expression to the world. It means that we open the door of relationship to the undesirable. Now, I want to make this point clear because this is a hurdle. Opening the door to invitation is not the same as condoning anything that somebody says, does, or, or believes. It's not about condoning anything that's out of line with the relationship with God. It's not an excuse for or an excuse to sin. It's an invitation for a relationship that opens the door to reconciling those things with God. It's not about condoning It's about reconciling. No hierarchy. No favoritism. Go collect those no one else will collect. There are workers for the harvest that are waiting for an invitation to join the crew. What Jesus did for us is available to them. And we have the honor of extending this availability to those that don't yet know the love that God has for them. So, as we close out our fall series together and prepare to enter the Advent season, did you know that I'm a fan of the Advent season? We have celebrations coming that mark how God's love for us is evidenced by his breaking into the world to save us. When we think about all the celebrations that we have during this advent season, I'll just point one thing out. Our table is not yet full. Our table's not full. Let's abide in Jesus by going back to the village, again and again and again, looking for those that have yet to be hired. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite Jenna to come back up, and we also invite those that are to be baptized to come up as we as we close. And if you would, uh, if you're being baptized, if you just come on up over here, um, I will uh, say this before I turn myself off, so I don't. Uh, Cause any kind of, uh, I don't know. I think that I'd get in trouble if I dropped this in the in the tank. But um, <laughs> this is true. Uh, I'm going to have uh, these folks come up, and they are about to profess their, uh, th- they're they're going to demonstrate their profession of of their, uh, their love for Christ and Christ's love for them uh, by being baptized. And uh, w- what's going to happen now as we close in worship is I'm going to kind of I'm going to be talking to them and dealing with them, and then uh, we're gonna we're gonna dunk them and celebrate that uh, that. Today, the kingdom is getting more workers. Now, one thing I would just say, if, if, you, if you can sense or feel what, what is uh, uh, about to happen, one thing that I would just take a moment and, and, and point out, we, have, uh, we are in this physical realm, but all around us is a spiritual realm. And right now, in heaven, you think about the celebration that is happening right now yes. with the reality that God's love is is going to be known in in any more full way now that that there are more coming into the kingdom of god there is no greater celebration in heaven than what we are about to to be able to see and experience together as a family and then we get some chili (laughs) so let's worship